Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 10. What's going on with these executions? The sun was in the process of nudging its way over the horizon. Darby O'Malley sat on the uppermost rock ledge of a section of the Ithacan Hills, an uplifted section of land 12 miles south of Manassas. She held down a map that was part of Texas and folded it on the rocks, studying the possible routes of the pickup truck. She had left Phillips at his hotel well before sunrise. He would travel out to the prison in advance of the execution where he would station his car along the prison road. Mixing with the crowd, he would then wait for the pickup to leave the prison with its cargo hidden in its bed. If the truck did not head south toward Darby, he would have the track on it, staying far enough behind as to not be seen. Darby put the map in her pocket and looked north through her binoculars. She could see the prison clearly across the 12-mile distance. People had begun to gather in a parking lot next to the prison, but the binoculars were not powerful enough to bring in images of the individuals. Her eyes ached from the long night as she swung the binoculars toward the town of Manassas itself, the sun illuminating the narrow buildings and streets. She set the glasses down and leaned back on the rocks to rest for a few minutes. Closing her eyes, she took a deep breath and felt the warming sun on her cheeks as she thought of her friends. None of the three had received more than an hour or two of sleep. Carrie was rushed to the airport after midnight, and it was past 1.30 when she and Phillips arrived back at the Lone Star Motel. They slept for a short time, leaving at 3.30 for Manassas, and always fearful of being followed. She headed for the hills where she began her arduous ascent in the dead of night. Carrie was safely in Chicago now, she thought, and she and Phillips were about to face the challenge of their lives on that morning. Whatever was going on, it made her very nervous. She was uneasy about risking her life because of some elusive conspiracy, but she was never one to back off from a decision once she had made it. Because of this stubborn resolve, she was determined to follow the thing through. She could not rest as she opened her eyes and looked northward toward Manassas and Gary Phillips somewhere down there amidst the morning haze. Even though Carrie's life was open to a greater threat than the unknown Gary Phillips, she was worried more about Phillips. They might have seen his face on the day before, or they might have already had him under surveillance on that morning. Could be in trouble right at this moment, she thought. She was coming around to sympathize with his courage in the whole affair. And she could understand he was not only at a turning point in uncovering the truth of the conspiracy, but he was at a dramatic turning point in his own life. Contrary to her suspicions, Phillips was quite safe at that moment. He had finished eating at the restaurant, paying for his meal with the huge wad of bills that Carrie had given him at the airport. He walked outside, looking toward the mountains and the horizon. Getting into his MG, he proceeded to the western part of town where the Manassas prison was located. He had to second-guess the events of the past few hours in this tranquil Texas town. All the while, he would glance in the rearview mirror to see if he was being tailed. He tumbled over the railroad tracks and shortly thereafter took a left on Route 49 onto Route 62. The hills were clearer now as the country opened up and he entered the road to the prison. <laughs> Security seemed much tighter at this prison than the one in Craigville. His heart flooded as the policeman stopped him at the entrance. He asked for Phillips's New Jersey license and requested an explanation as to why Phillips had come all the way to Texas. Phillips stressed that his social conscience had been aroused 
and he wanted to do his small part. This seemed to satisfy the officer and he let Phillips pass. The road was paved with chain-link fences on both sides. It continued for close to a mile and a half before it opened up into a large asphalt parking lot in front of the yellow brick prison. The parking lot, like the road, was not closed by a high chain-link fence. However, the fence of the parking lot was another chain-link fence with four tiers of barbed wire to prevent any attempted escape. Several men in civilian clothes, whom whom Phillips suspected of working for the commission, directed him to stop, whereupon he was interrogated a second time. He produced his license again and then ordered to park his car to the right. On the left side of the parking lot, half as large as a football field, was a roped-off area. Here the life demonstration would take place, and a platform more elaborate than the one in Craigville was constructed in the front. There must have been at least a hundred people already gathered in the lot as he walked up to the ropes. Some had camped out on the surrounding land, and many stood with their belongings wrapped inside their backpacks. Once more he was halted by a man at the ropes, who asked him the same general questions. They led him inside, and he found a place next to the fence where he could rest. He sat down, still not sure of how the day would turn out, but certain that it would be long and difficult. When Phillips awoke from a short sleep, he noticed that the crowd had increased in size. It was nearing 8 o'clock now, the execution time. He opened his eyes quickly and saw that most of them were moved to the front of the lot, near the platform and the fence barrier. As he stood on his feet, he saw several of the prison guards setting up widescreen televisions behind the fences with loudspeakers that would actually broadcast the execution to the protesters, the ultimate horror for those who deplored capital punishment. Phillips could understand quite vividly what they were doing. He was sure that Krager must be behind the idea, a new tactic to create hostility within the ranks and further and further discredit life. Another attempt to subvert justice, shouted Krager over a megaphone to Phillips's right. Phillips turned his head abruptly and grew angry as he saw the poorly dressed Krager. If this is what you want, Governor Clark, then you've got it, demanded Krager, effectively expounding his rhetoric. He knew how to rouse the crowd for his own purposes while still letting them think they were participating in a greater good. Phillips hovered near the fence in order to keep watch for the pickup truck. However, the monitors were visible to him and he could hear the loudspeakers distinctly. The tension was building from the outside all the way to the execution room. As early was led to the room of death, the crowd broke into a wild frenzy. Someone hurled a rock, beginning a chain reaction within the ranks, and soon the monitors were being pelted by high-arcing missiles of any kind. A few hit their desired target, but most fell short. I urge the police to stay back, said Krager through the megaphone. It was at this exact moment that the officers outside the roped-in area adorned their riot gear and moved forward toward the demonstration. Having failed, to knock out the, having failed to knock out the monitors, the demonstrators began throwing whatever they could at the advancing police. It was partially out of self-protection as they were completely pinned inside the lot. Phillips tried, to, Phillips tried to slink along the edge of the fence and out to his car, but it was impossible to get out of the area. Police had barricaded, had barricaded the parking lot. His only hope was to get on the platform as he had a sneaking suspicion that Krager would not be arrested for this melee. Traveling the length of the fence, he got up on the platform. As he passed... Traversing the length of the fence, 
Phillips got up on the platform. As he passed the monitors, he could see that Early was now dead, and they were carrying his body out of the execution room. Phillips knew he had to get out of the parking lot. It seemed out of the question as he watched the exchange and waited for an opening to move. Minutes passed with people slugging it out with the police, and soon several paddy wagons rushed down the tart, rushed down the asphalt road, backing up to the parking lot. Several groups of demonstrators, some bleeding and bruised, were crated to the wagons. News cameras, as well as a live pickup from local television, caught the unhealthy scene with the majority of the protesters staying huddled along the monitors as reinforcements from the police kept them surrounded. Time was running out for Gary Phillips. The empty hearse, this one beige with its curtains drawn, was escorted down the road and turned northeast on Route 49. This brought it back to Manassas and the Interstate Highway, and a second pickup with Early inside would be leaving the prison. Phillips would be helpless now to follow it. Twenty minutes passed and there was no sign of the truck. He strongly suspected that he had missed it, or maybe they had really loaded Early's body into the hearse. Double rows of police, their helmets shining in the sunlight, stood in back of the ropes, wielding their solid wooden knife sticks. Phillips leaned against the fence as he realized that Crager had somehow slipped away. He looked around the yard as a police captain stepped forward with a megaphone. Have your attention, please. Your attention, please. We're going to proceed with an orderly clearing of the prison parking lot area. You will not be arrested. I repeat, you will not be arrested, but we want no more violence. A single line will form and exit along the row of officers in the extreme right corner between the ropes and the outside fence next to the road. He said as he pointed to his left. Phillips leaped from the platform as the crowd surged forward. He ended up about midway in the line. He stood with his arms crossed, constantly scanning the grounds, when he found out what he had been awaiting. A red pickup truck with a light green canvas stretched over the bed, pulled around the southern edge of the prison over the grounds and through a gate which was opened along the road leading to the highway. Phillips memorized the license plate as it leisurely chugged down the road. Then he crossed his fingers, hoping desperately as it turned south. The right directional came on and Phillips smiled as he moved along in the line. It took another 10 minutes before he stepped past the police ropes. Running at top speed, he got in his little car and tried to appear somewhat relaxed as he drove slowly to the end of the road. Turning right, he increased his speed, racing toward the mountains to the south. Join us next time for another episode of Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.